Welcome to episode 21 of History of the Marine Corps, John Adams Fights Alongside Marines. Last week, we focused on the commander of the Ranger, John Paul Jones. He had pushback on a couple of his decisions, and it impacted some of his Marines. We also learned about a raid conducted by Marines and sailors on the Duke of Selkirk's residence, and the impact Marine Lieutenant Wallingford left on Lady Selkirk that inspired her to write a letter to John Paul Jones when she heard of Wallingford's death. This week, we take a look at Marines on board the Boston. The ship would be given orders to escort John Adams to France and replace Silas Dean as one of the American commissioners. During their voyage, they would encounter a British vessel and John Adams would fight alongside Marines in this engagement. Marines will also advance on the Bahamas for a second raid on Fort Nassau. Thanks for joining. Now let's talk about the history of the Marine Corps. Last week, we talked about John Paul Jones and his intense rivalry with Lieutenant Thomas Simpson. Jones arrested Simpson for treason. However, the American commissioners in Paris convinced Jones to let Simpson go free so he can face his court-martial in the States. Just five weeks after being released, Jones was relieved of his duty on board the Ranger, and Lieutenant Simpson was given command. Jones watched as his ship and the Boston sailed away from Europe. Before the Boston paired up with the Ranger and sailed off with John Paul Jones's old ship and crew, it faced its own struggles with recruiting inadequate staff to man the ship. In January, six months prior to the Boston and the Ranger leaving France, Captain Samuel Tucker was preparing the ship for departure. Richard Palms was assigned to the Boston as the captain of Marines. Genealogy records show that the Palms family lived in or around Boston, Massachusetts in the late 18th century. Before he joined the Marine Corps, Palms and his wife owned a house on the south side of Elm Street in Boston. There was also a Richard Palms who held a position in the town office, and it's documented that he testified at the trial of the Boston Massacre on March 5, 1770. The Marine Committee recommended Richard Palms for the role of Captain of Marines to the Continental Congress, and they agreed with this suggestion. On July 23, 1776, he was commissioned as a captain and immediately started recruiting his Marines. He and Lieutenant William Jennison traveled to a few cities recruiting men, and they were successful. By mid-January, the Boston was adequately staffed, and on January 20th, Captain Tucker gave his orders to Palms. These set of orders were important. Before these documented orders from Tucker to Palms, Marines' roles and responsibilities on board ships weren't entirely clear. Tucker's orders were the first time clear-cut responsibility for Marines were documented and communicated, and it broke out duties between the officers and enlisted men. Captain Tucker's orders stated, You being commanding officer of Marines on the ship Boston, under my command, my orders are that the commissioned and non-commissioned officers are to go on board with the men under your command and reside there constantly at their duty. You are to be particularly careful that a commissioned officer does constantly lie on board every night. You are to obey such orders as you shall receive from me or the commanding officer on the ship in my absence. The commanding officer of the ship is not to give any Marines leave to go on shore upon their own occasions, 
if you have any reasonable objection thereto. The Marines are to be exercised in their use of their arms as often as you shall think proper, and are to be employed as sentinels, and upon any other duty and service on board the ship which they shall be capable of. Tucker goes on to clarify that the sentinels will not have any other duty 24 hours after they are relieved from post. Tucker concludes his orders by stating, The marine arms, cartouche boxes, drums, fifes, and accoutrements are under the immediate inspection of you or your officers. You are to be careful that the arms be kept in good order and keep a sufficient number of cartridges and balls in readiness for action. You are welcome to go on shore when you please, leaving such orders with your officers, as for the safety and good order of the ship. With the full staff and detailed orders, the Boston and her crew were stocked full of powder and made her final preparations before receiving orders to France. John Adams was selected to be the new commissioner to France, and he was slated to replace Silas Dean. Captain Tucker also received word that Adams' 11-year-old son, John Quincy Adams, as well as the sons of Silas Dean and William Vernon, would accompany them on their voyage to receive an education in France. On February 15th, the Boston prepared to set sail, but Adams wasn't confident that the ship was prepared for the voyage. He noted in his diary that the ship had very few sailors and there was chaos on board the vessel. Adams didn't think the sailors or marines were disciplined and were not adequately trained to handle the guns and cannons. Despite Adams' reservations about the ship's crew, Tucker proceeded with his mission. The Boston would be held up for two more days due to strong winds and heavy snow, but on the morning of the 17th, she would leave port towards Europe. Before the Boston would set sail, she fired seven guns saluting her departure. It would be a rough trip, and the crew would experience an intense storm that brought hurricane-like winds and lasted for three days. According to Adams, it was hard to maintain balance on board the ship, and men would find it difficult to stand up without falling over. Any equipment or supplies not tied down was thrown about the ship. Adams also noted that during the storm, a bolt of lightning struck the captain of the main mast and burnt a hole in his head about the size of a quarter. He lived another three days but ended up dying. After the storm subsided, the rest of the trip was relatively quiet. Strong winds helped make up for lost time and the Boston would even capture the Martha, a British privateer ship with cargo valued at more than 84,000 pounds. During the battle between the Martha and the Boston, John Adams briefly joined the Marines, which resulted in a powerful patriotism and motivation to the men on board the ship. According to Samuel Tucker, We fell in with a very large armed ship. She soon appeared in a posture of engaging, and having our ship in readiness, with the men at their quarters, it became my duty to give Mr. Adams such information as necessary. He followed me on deck where we conversed a few minutes on the subject of taking the ship, and after listening a moment or two at my request for his safety, took me by the hand with a God bless you, and descended the gangway ladder to the cockpit. Captain Tucker goes on to say, I observed Mr. Adams among my Marines, dressed as one of them, and in the act of defense. I then went to him and said, My dear sir, how come you're here? With a smile he replied, I ought to do my share of the fighting. 
The ship would arrive in France on April 1st and made port near Bordeaux. On April 4th, Marine Captain Richard Palms made the trek to Paris with John Adams. This was a relatively uneventful trip, but being a former Marine security guard, I found this part interesting. The current Marine Security Guard program began with the Foreign Service Act of 1946, and it authorized the Secretary of the Navy to deploy Marines to embassies and consulates throughout the globe at the request of the Secretary of State. But the relationship between these two government organizations dates back to the State Department's first creation in 1798 and during the Battle of Tripoli in the early 1800s. This bit of information was interesting because it pushes a date when Marines were involved with protecting diplomats back a few years. Anyways, while Palms was making his way towards Paris, the Boston headed towards Lormont, where it was cleaned and a replacement for that poor soul struck by lightning was found. On the 10th, the crew was authorized liberty. However, the officers stayed on the ship and prepared for their upcoming voyage. Marine Lieutenant Jennison was one of the officers who stayed on board and he used his time to draft and submit a request for clothing for all Marines on board. He requested 40 green coats faced with white, white waistcoats, and white breeches. Every button was to be plain white, coats will be open-sleeved, and a belt would be included with every waistcoat. It took a month to prepare, but Marines would be issued their new uniforms. Captain Palms left Paris and arrived in Bordeaux on the 27th. He was carrying secret orders from the American commissioners with him. The order suggested that the Boston head towards the entrance of the Baltic, but ultimately left the destination up to Captain Tucker. Once they arrived, they would capture ships and supplies to support the war. But the commissioners were concerned with the Boston being short-staffed. They recommended that Tucker take some time and try to find men in Bordeaux who he can recruit to assist him with the mission. The ship would stay in port for another two months while Marines and sailors were recruited. In early May, a French citizen named Jean Morel volunteered to serve on board the Boston as a Marine. It turned out that this Frenchman's wife wasn't too thrilled about her husband's decision, and she filed a complaint with the port's commissary of Marine, stating that her husband was forced to serve on board the Boston and he was being held against his will. News of her complaint started to spread, and naturally, gossip started to form. This caused some drama between the Americans in port and the local French, but it didn't seem to affect recruitment too much. Part of this success was due to the Marines' new green uniforms. It would attract young men and motivate them to join the Marines on board the Boston. On June 6th, the Boston set sail with several other ships by her side. Three days into the journey, Captain Palms gave orders to each of his lieutenants regarding the behavior of his Marines. Part of these orders contained some of the first documented accounts for weapons inventory and handling, which included cleanliness of the weapon. Marines were to thoroughly clean their weapons with oakum and return it in as good as order when it was delivered to them. He also issued new orders regarding desertion. As we mentioned multiple times throughout our show, American military branches all struggled with men deserting their post and had a hard time convincing men to stay. Captain Palms took a more direct route to combat this issue, and he stated that any man who deserted their post would be shot on the spot. This trip would last less than a month, and the Boston would pull into Lorient with her convoy. 
During their trip, four ships were captured. Normally this would be considered a successful voyage, but once they arrived in Lorient, trouble started to brew with the Frenchmen who were recruited in Bordeaux. On July 8th, Captain Palms reported that eight Frenchmen refused to stand duty. As punishment, Palms ordered that they forfeit their pay and any prizes acquired during the capture of the four additional ships. He also stated that the Frenchmen were not much use if they were refusing to serve, and they should be sent to shore. He suggested that any duty should be given to only American Marines, and they be exempt from all other duties on board the ship. Captain Tucker understood Palm's complaints, and he took his suggestions into consideration. While he was thinking of the best approach, the eight French Marines were given liberty, and they were allowed on land. Apparently, they started creating a commotion about the way they were treated on board the Boston. This caught the attention of a local French general, and he went on board the ship to speak with the Frenchmen. Despite Captain Tucker's evidence that each Frenchman voluntarily signed up for service and no one was held against their will, the French general asked each of the French citizens if they would prefer to stay on board the ship or be relieved of duty. All 24 French Marines and 23 French sailors decided to leave, and the Boston would again be short-staffed. Captain Tucker sent a letter to the American commissioners in Paris about the situation, but the three commissioners did not want to tarnish their relationship with their new ally and decided to do nothing about the behavior from their French counterparts. On August 1st, Tucker and the Boston would leave port and sail to Nantes to meet up with the Providence. The Providence was experiencing a delay in their departure and really hasn't been doing much while on the Providence River. Normally, this downtime would be used to recruit new men for the ship, but after months of waiting, the Providence was still short on the number of officers or Marines assigned to the ship. To compensate for the difficulties of recruiting new staff, the Navy Board of the Eastern Department ordered that all new officers be assigned to the Providence and that the authorized pay and benefits be increased for every man on board the ship. The idleness also caused many of the Marine officers to leave as well, and the only one left was Lieutenant Zebediah Farnham. Captain Whipple, commander of the Providence, started to look for men to take the place of the Marine officers who resigned their post. He found William Jones as the replacement. When Jones was 23 years old, during the start of the American Revolution, he was commissioned as a lieutenant in the Rhode Island State Regiment. He was very successful as a new lieutenant and was promoted eight months later to captain. During episode 15, The Marines Help Out General Washington Part 2, we talked about one of the challenges Washington was facing regarding expiring enlistment contracts and the looming threat of the British advancing on Philadelphia. Jones and his men would support Washington's appeal to stay longer and participate in confronting the British at the Bridge of Assunpink and in the Battle of Princeton. He returned to his family in February 1777, where he lived a quiet life for a little over a year before Captain Whipple came knocking on his door. Whipple received a recommendation from John Deshawn of Boston, describing Jones as a man well acquainted with the service, having been in it most of the war, and has great interest in raising a company of Marines. His appearance and character is such I apprehend will do honor to the service. Not too long after bringing Jones on board, 
Jonathan Woodworth showed up at the Providence with 20 other men and volunteered to serve on board as Marines. Woodworth was commissioned as a lieutenant, and he and his 20 Marines were welcome aboard. At the end of April, Whipple would find his last Marine officer, William Waterman. The ship was still understaffed, but in a lot better shape than before. On May 1st, she set sail for France to pick up weapons and ammunition. During her trek, she encountered the Lark, a British frigate. They engaged in an intense battle where the Providence would disable the British frigate, and in the process damage her rigging. It took the Providence 26 days to reach Nantes, but once in port, Marine Captain Jones was sent to Paris to meet with the three American commissioners. They ordered the Providence return to the United States and take with them a supply of clothing and weapons to support General Washington's army. It took a few months to repair, clean, and supply the Providence, but by the middle of July, the ship was back up and running and was loaded with copper, cork, weapons, and ammunition, and clothing. She left port and met up with the Boston on August 3rd at St. Nazaire. When they met, they gave each other a 13-gun salute and sailed together to Brest to meet up with the Ranger. The combined strength of this fleet was impressive, and they sailed away from France on August 22nd towards Portsmouth, New Hampshire. During their trip, they would capture multiple ships. They arrived on August 16th, and six days later, the Providence and the Boston would sail for Boston, while the Ranger would stay in Portsmouth for repairs. The continuous growth and increased strength of the American military was proving to be a problem for the British. The Americans kept winning battles and capturing ships, and this was something the British did not anticipate during the start of the war. To make matters worse, the French are now aligned with the Americans, and they're providing much-needed supplies and men to support war efforts. Having a port to use in Europe was also a big plus for the Americans, and they were starting to develop strategy on taking the war to British soil. The British needed to step up their game, so the British Secretary of State for the Colonies ordered that the British military change their focus to attacking and destroying shipyards in all ships from Connecticut to New Hampshire. Around three weeks later, on March 8th, these orders would include directions to Sir Henry Clinton, stating that if he was unable to defeat Washington, he would stop any future offensive operations on land and instead spend the summer months raiding the coast. However, the alliance with France changed British strategy, and they decided to change their focus towards the war with France. British troops were withdrawn from Philadelphia and moved towards New York. They were ordered to attack the French West Indies if the opportunity arises, and protect all British possessions in the States. The British ordered all frigates back to England. The British tactics have changed, and they were now playing defense to protect the homeland. The Americans learned of a British ship, the Mary, docking in Nassau for repairs, and Captain John Peck Rathbun and Marine Captain John Trevitt came up with a plan to advance Fort Nassau and take what they please. Not everyone shared Captain Rathbun's enthusiasm, and Captain Biddle thought his plan was a little overconfident, and he tried to convince Rathbun that his plan was pointless. Biddle had a close friendship with Trevitt, and he tried to get him transferred to the Randolph, but Rathbun needed him for his plan to work. Trevitt stayed with Rathbun, and the ship sailed to New Providence. 
They didn't make it too far, and shortly after they departed, they were welcomed by three enemy ships. Captain Rathbun had no other option but to try and outrun the advancing British ships. He ordered that all water, wood, and as many supplies as possible be thrown overboard to help lighten the ship and assist with outrunning the British vessels. This effort was fruitless, and the enemy continued to inch their way closer to Rathbun and his ship. They chased the Americans until nightfall, where Rathbun ordered sails lowered and all lights extinguished. The British continued to head in the directions of the Americans, but due to nightfall, they were not able to spot the vessel. The enemy passed the Americans as they quietly waited in the dark. As soon as the British were out of sight, Rathbun hoisted his sails and headed in the opposite direction. Within a few days, they arrived in Abaco Island and started to resupply the ship with water and lost supplies. The men who weren't collecting supplies started to outfit the vessel with the scaling ladder so they can use during the attack on the two New Providence forts. On January 27, 1778, the Providence left Abaco Island and sailed towards Nassau. She sailed with her topmast down and her gun ports closed. All of her crew was below deck. Around midnight, she arrived in Nassau Harbor and dropped anchor. Her barge was lowered and 26 marines boarded and prepared to head towards land. The barge was not large enough and the landing party had to be split up into two groups. The first trip contained Lieutenant Michael Moulton and 14 other marines. The second group had Trevitt and his 10 marines. They landed about a mile west of Fort Nassau. There the marines made preparations for the attack. I have a map up on historyofthemarinecorps.com if you need a visualization of the layout. But Fort Nassau was a fort in between the town of Nassau and the harbor. Coincidentally, less than a week before the Marines landed in Nassau for a second time, the chairman of the island's council wrote to the British Secretary of State for America and ensured him that the two forts could withstand any assault. He stated, I now deem the fort sufficiently fitted to keep out any force the rebels may ever think of sending this way. During previous episodes, we discussed the conditions of these two forts. The forts were unable to resist Marines during the first raid due to the terrible conditions of the cannons and the fort walls. Every time a cannon was fired, either the cannon support structure or the walls of the fort would collapse due to the blast from the cannon. Since then, repairs were made and the fort was now equipped with four 18-pounders, four 9-pounders, four 6-pounders, and four 4-pounders. The British understood the value of this island and made a lot of repairs to prevent American forces from capturing the island so easily again. However, what the British didn't prepare for was Captain Trevitt and his experience from the previous battle. During the first raid and capture of Fort Nassau, Trevitt removed one of the fence posts on the west side of the fort. He and his men quietly made their way to that spot and discovered that the fence had not been repaired. He crawled through the opening just in time to hear one of the sentinels shout, All is well, to his colleagues. Other sentinels echoed his status, confirming that all is clear at their post. Trevor waited a few minutes for the guards to make their rounds, and led his marines through the opening. The marines assumed that the guards patrolled the fort every 30 minutes, so they waited. About 30 minutes later, the marines heard the guards shout, 
All is well, again. After all of the guards confirmed the area was clear, Trevitt and his marines used the scaling ladder to climb over the wall of the fort. With the marines inside the fort and their adrenaline flowing, Trevitt reminded his marines that silence was paramount. A gunshot would notify the rest of the sentries of their presence, so the marines prepared for hand-to-hand -hand combat. Next week, we dig into the second raid of Fort Nassau. Thanks for listening. Join us next week as we cover the second raid on Fort Nassau. If you like what you're hearing, check out historyofthemarinecorps.com. Here you can subscribe to our newsletter, find out more information about each episode, and take a look at references used for each episode. We are also on Facebook and Twitter at Marine History, and on Instagram at History of the Marines. If you're enjoying the podcast, tell a friend. We count on listeners like you to share, and any help would be greatly appreciated. If you don't like what you hear, please contact us through historyofthemarinecorps.com and let us know why. I'm always looking for ways to improve. Thanks for listening, and Semper Fi.